Former President Donald Trump has confirmed Governor Kristi Noem is on his short list for vice president from SDPB. Today is February 21st, and this is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, the Dakota political junkies provide analysis on how the presidential campaign is intersecting with the state legislative session. And we'll check in on how the governor's call to defend Texas is translating into a mission for South Dakota National Guardsmen. Lee Strubinger brings an update on a call to change how South Dakota decides whose name can appear on the ballot for Attorney General and Secretary of State. Plus, not every bill makes it to the other side. We'll talk with leaders from both parties about crossover day and the priorities still in play. We're broadcasting live today from our SDPB studios in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. This is In the Moment State House on SDPB. I am your host, Lori Walsh. The 2022 South Dakota Republican Convention showcased factions in the state party, and the turbulence from that convention has not been forgotten. State senators debated Senate Bill 13 this week. It would change how the lieutenant governor, secretary of state, and attorney general are selected. The bill passed the Senate in time to cross over to the House. SDPB's Lee Strubinger is seated in our studios at the Capitol Building in Pierre with an update. Hey, Lee. Hey, Lori. Let's start with a little bit of background on Senate Bill 13. Yeah, so let's go back to the uh, 2022 convention, which occurred just a, less than a week after uh, the Senate impeachment trial against um, former Attorney General uh, Jason Roundsburg. What happened at that convention um, was, you know, you had uh, Governor Kristi Noem's running mate, uh, lieutenant, the lieutenant governor, has to be chosen at convention. And there were efforts to um, place Noem's challenger for the 2022 primary, uh, former uh, Speaker of the House Steve Haugard, in as the governor's running mate. There were also efforts, uh, successful efforts, um, by uh, challenger um, Monet Johnson, who's our current Secretary of State, uh, she was able to unseat Steve Barnett. And then there were also efforts to um, unseat, uh, or there was kind of a last minute effort for there to be a bit of a challenger to uh, Marty Jackley, who was had been running for Attorney General up at that point for about a year. Um, and so a lot of this discussion is sort of centered around that particular thing. What lawmakers want to do is they want to change um, the, the, the process for those three candidates. One, they would change it to where the lieutenant governor is chosen by the governor. Whoever the nominee is heading into the general election, they just get to pick whoever their running mate is. There's no um, nomination process at the party convention. I think everybody kind of agrees that that should be something uh, that should be allowed. Where the kind of uh, tension starts to come up is when we're talking about um, uh, moving the uh, sort of selection of the Attorney General and the Secretary of State from that party convention to the primary ballot. Um, and and critics of, of this particular move, they'll point to um, the fact that, you know, this has been done for or decades uh, in, uh, by, by uh, the state's major parties. Um, and one of the arguments for the convention process, the current process that we have, is that the delegates, the, the kind of county party delegates who are precinct committee men and committee women, um, that they do a good job of 
vetting the candidates that ultimately end up on the ballot. The prime backer of this particular uh, issue in the Senate is uh, State Senator Lee Schoenbeck, and he disagrees with that. And he points to one of the examples in the 2022 convention, um, and he spoke, he said this on the House floor yesterday. Take, take a listen. I want to tell you just a great story that applies to almost not everybody, about at least 25 members of this body. Right up there, uh, a Monday in June, we heard testimony at the impeachment trial that David Natvig, the head of DCI, interfered with a criminal investigation. We heard the testimony right there. And that day, we convicted the Attorney General of impeachment. Two days later, those delegates at the state convention tried to nominate and throw out Marty Jackley in favor of the person that we all heard was engaged in criminal conduct interfering with a criminal investigation. That's, <laughs> at a minimum, it's not good vetting. Um, so I would suggest let's let the voters have the opportunity to vet candidates. They're going to be there already at the polls, and you're talking about giving an opportunity to probably another 200,000 South Dakotans. Please support the bill. Thank you. So some of the numbers that we're talking about here in terms of, of just the amount of people involved, you know, uh, Senator Schoenbeck talked about 200-some thousand South Dakotans weighing in. You know, and we're talking like specifically just um, Republican uh, primary voting right now. Um, about 200,000 some primary voters. When we're talking uh, convention goers, um, it, that, that could be anywhere from, from uh, 300 to 600 convention goers. There are about 800 total, but it really, you know, on a, at a, on a good convention, there's about 600 people who show up. And, and a lot of those uh, calculations are sort of weighed depending on how many votes in a particular county went towards the governor, et cetera. Um, and so that's kind of how a lot of that works. They want to put it back to uh, just kind of the, the primary voters um, to sort of weigh in, one voice, one vote. So Lee, let's talk again about what happens if this bill passes and when it takes effect. Yeah, so you know, a lot of, that, a lot of those details are still uh, sort of out there. Um, uh, so those are still being um, sort of negotiated. One, one of the things that I just heard is that the bill that is being uh, currently talked about um, might fail in the House and that it'll get uh, sort of resurrected uh, again in, in sort of a, a similar format. Um, and so we'll have to, I guess, kind of wait and see on that. You know, I'll be honest, I, uh, I haven't looked at the particular dates when this would, would go into effect, but there's no emergency clause on it and mm -hmm. so um, that would mean it would go into effect on July 1st of, of this year, which would be sort of after uh, the kind of primary uh, election this year. So this, this kind of efforts have failed in the House, and that is where it's going now. So do I understand you correctly when I'm interpreting what you just said as the bill, the Senate Bill 13, as it moved to the House, they're already talking about how it might shift before the final debate or passage. I guess what I'm wondering is what exactly happens next and how is this different than what's happened before? Sure, and can I answer the last question you yeah. just said a little bit better? Yeah. Because there are, there, the, the Attorney General and Secretary of State are not up for re-election this year. So it would, it, would, it would essentially, if it were to pass, it would be in place for the, uh, <laughs> the uh, 2026 <laughs> election year, right. sorry. Yeah. Um, and so in terms of the calculations in the House, um, one of the, there, there's a sense out there that there were a few votes uh, against this idea that said, let's have this get fixed at a Republican Central Committee meeting that happened earlier this month. 
and they didn't see those efforts sort of go forward. So backers of this plan see a pathway forward in the House because of um, what some have called a change of heart uh, by a few lawmakers there. Okay. So that's the path forward in the House. We have you know. Yeah, we have Republican lawmakers coming up next, so we're going to ask mm -hmm. them that question. But before I let you go, Lee, uh, we've been following the debate over prisons in South Dakota, looking at appropriations, revenue projections have come in. So regarding prisons, what is the latest update that you have for us today? Yeah, so the Joint Appropriations Committee this morning was hearing uh, testimony on two bills that look to fund these two prison projects, one just outside of Sioux Falls and one uh, in Rapid City. Uh, those ideas, they haven't voted on uh, the, the men's prison uh, specifically um, yet. Uh, they're going to vote on that uh, tomorrow, but they did vote to uh, put the funding in for uh, the women's prison uh, in Rapid City. I mean, these are big budget items that these lawmakers are, are really looking at. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the things that I'm watching is what's going to happen with some of the one-time money. Um, the projections we talked about last week, there's 41 million in kind of this one-time money that, that lawmakers can spend. How much of that will even go towards paying that down or there are other folks that want to see this money go to uh, other things. So we'll just be kind of keeping an eye on where that money ends up. All right, Lee Strubinger from SDPB's Capital Studio in Pierre. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Lori. Well, we have hit crossover day in the state legislative session. It's an important legislative deadline where all the bills have to have passed out of their chamber of origin and moved on to the other chamber. If a bill doesn't make that leap, it is considered dead. So let's get an update from state Republican leadership about their priorities, uh, how they've been faring and what's coming ahead. We have Senator Casey Crabtree. He is majority leader of the state Senate and Representative Will Mortensen is the majority leader of the House of Representatives and they are seated as well in our STPB Capitol Studios in Pier. Welcome back, gentlemen. Thanks so much for being here again. Thanks for having us. Good afternoon, Lori. We'll start with Leader Mortensen, and I want to continue. Hopefully you heard a little bit about what Lee Strubinger was talking to us about, hoping for some clarification on Senate Bill 13 and these efforts to rethink how a convention happens in South Dakota and how um, the Attorney General, the Secretary of State, and Lieutenant Governor are decided in, in this state. This bill is coming your way, Will. So um, what are some of the things that you're considering as you lead your house? Yeah, it's not a topic that's new to us. We've been looking at this over the last few years and really beyond that, there have been bills brought to really ask the question, who should get to decide who the nominees are for critical positions like Attorney General, Secretary of State, um, and there's some uh, discussion, mostly folks who actually go to these conventions would say it should be at the convention, no small, uh, uh, no small surprise in that. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of voters are increasingly saying, hey, why don't we have a say? Um, we ask the voters to nominate candidates for legislature. We ask them to nominate candidates for county commission, of course, governor, U.S. Senate, Congress. Uh, and I think there's pretty growing consensus in the legislature that in particular the Attorney General should be nominated uh, by the people, by the voters uh, of each party, uh, and that the Lieutenant Governor should be selected by the Governor candidate. I know for sure there's a broad consensus in the public on that, uh, but the mechanics of, of how we get there um, I, I think are still in play. We're still working on the, the right form of that bill, even if uh, I think folks have come to 
pretty good conclusions on, on maybe where we should be headed ultimately. Yeah. Uh, Senator Crabtree, this would apply for Republicans and Democrats, right? Help people understand the implications of this for voters a little more clearly, especially honing in on that debate yesterday in the Senate because it was rigorous and, and interesting. What came out of that that you think uh, voters might need to understand? Well, Laura, you're correct. That is the same process for both uh, Republicans and Democrats. And really, you know, the discussion happened yesterday, uh, so it's pretty fresh for us. Mm -hmm. But a couple of things that I'd just point out. We are one of three states that do this this way. Um, in the last one, we talked the, about the Republicans. 0.2% of Republicans were able to vote uh, on some of their statewide leaders. And so this really isn't about uh, the last convention uh, or the convention before that. Uh, for me, it's really about what does the future look like? How do we build the best, strongest party we can? And I think that's by including as many votes and voices uh, possible. And so uh, that's kind of our take, and uh, that moves through the process. Now I would say this, the, you know, from the proponent or opponent standpoint, we all want the same thing. We want uh, good government. We want uh, strong parties. Um, we just have a, a little bit different views on how we get there in the future. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. What I'm hearing you say is, in spite of my uh, introduction, really saying, you know, think back to the 2020, uh, you know, primary. It's not all tied to that. This is something that has been discussed for quite some time, and uh, has a has a long tail as we have this conversation. So I just want to make sure I note that for listeners. Yeah. Now let's move on, uh, Senator Crabtree, and talk a little bit about Crossover Day and some of the things that are coming your way that you think are or should be prioritized as we move to really a, a rapidly passing legislative session not much yeah. time left no there's not and so a couple of things that I just want to talk to you about pro process wise Lori when it comes to crossover day uh, my co-pilot over here he's got three house bills that are up for debate um, on the Senate side we have four Senate bills that are up for debate today um, take back a couple of years uh, we had over 30 in the Senate that were up for debate. What's that really mean? That means our folks came in prepared and ready to go to work uh, to tackle some of the toughest issues. Uh, they didn't just show up on day one and start working on that. They came uh, after working with constituents through the summer, the interim period, and being ready to go to work. And so I'm, I'm proud of all my colleagues in the House and Senate for doing that, and we're in great shape today. Another thing I'd like to point out, Lori, is you see both uh, Will Mortensen and myself are wearing blue today. Generally on crossover day, uh, folks wear black. Uh, but today we're wearing blue for Senator Diedrich, uh, who's at home uh, fighting uh, uh, a cancer battle. And uh, it's our way of showing support for him, letting him know that we love him and we miss him, and uh, that we're, uh, we're uh, rooting hard for him and, and he's in our prayers. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, I'm wearing blue, but I didn't know that was the reason. <laughs> so well, it works as out. well, we uh, we send our, our um, affection to everyone as you do the work that you're doing and also think about your colleagues. So um, Will Mortensen, tell us a little bit about some of the priorities that you have today and what you're looking forward to in the days ahead. Yeah, you know, one of the main jobs of a caucus leader like uh, Casey and I are, are to try to turn, uh, I've got 63 members of my caucus. He's got uh, 32 in your caucus, 31, yep. 31. Uh, to, you know, and those are people, each of whom were elected by 27,000 people and their leaders in their communities. Uh, and so they've got big, strong opinions and they're well-informed opinions, but we've got to come out with budget priorities uh, that reflect a broad consensus of our caucuses. So we've been working on that. And, and really our big job is to, you know, is to get that budget passed you know, we tussle and make headlines and try to make political statements over the course of these nine weeks. And then you get to the last two weeks and you realize there's only one most important thing we do. 
and that's funding our schools, that's paying our prison guards and our state troopers and all the other state employees, uh, and it's funding the Medicaid providers so we can take care of people who cannot take care of themselves. That's really the most important thing we do. And so um, around this time of year, there's a few policy matters that are still out there to be resolved. But I would tell you that our focus has shifted to making sure that we're funding this government responsibly, that we've got a balanced budget, and that we're taking care of our core priorities. Uh, and so, that, you know, when I look ahead at what my next two weeks looks like, uh, it's making sure we land that plane. Um, Representative Mortensen, you suggested last time we talked to pay close attention to the prisons. And one of the interviews we've had since then was with um, from somebody from the State Bar Association and somebody from St. Dismas uh, Congregation about access to those same prisons. And the pastor mentioned that there's no chapel design in the new, the new prison as it's currently set up fairly standard in new corrections to not have that, but he felt it was really important for all faiths. And I'm just wondering if you could help listeners understand what your role will be in looking at the design of the facility mm -hmm. beyond the appropriations and having like who gets to have some of those conversations, because we've gotten a few comments from listeners about that. And uh, they'd like to know, well, who do we talk to about that design? Because we think it's a conversation worth furthering. What does that bring up for you? You know, it's a, it's a really good question. When I think about this prison project, I understand, uh, I think, my role in it, which is to ensure that it meets our policy goals. They changed the name of this department from the Department of Charities and Prisons, which it was for a long time, to the Department of Corrections. And I think that brought along with it uh, a new way of looking at what our prisons are for, which is actually rehabilitation and corrections. As I understand it, the new facility will have substantially increased space for not only treatment and rehabilitation and any, um, oh, you know, therapy and, and you know, mental and, and emotional support and health provision that we can provide, uh, but I, I believe it will also have additional space for prison ministries of, for all faiths. Now, what that looks like, and this is, again, maybe my limitation, I'm not an architect, and I'm not a project designer, and so uh, with ideas like that, I would really encourage uh, folks to reach out to the Department of Corrections. Um, Secretary Kelly Wasco is somebody who came to us from Colorado, and she's really an accomplished administrator. I've got a lot of faith in her that her goals are aligned, and, and she, knows, um, she knows to live up to that corrections moniker, and I, I think that she has a lot of expertise in constructing new facilities that are safe for the inmates, they're safe for the staff, and they allow for that kind of rehabilitation. So I would reach out to those Department of Corrections folks and uh, I expect them to give you an open ear and, um, and I, I do think that, uh, that we'll have improved infrastructure for all the, the parties that rely on those prisons. We have reached out to our producers to the Secretary of Corrections, have not been able to uh, been granted an interview yet. We'll keep trying, and uh, hopefully Leader Mortensen's words there will, will help make that happen. Senator Crabtree, let's go back to you in a little bit. And uh, we've heard a lot about policy, and at the top of the hour, we heard a news story about teacher compensation. And one of the things that stood out for me is this idea, this weight of accountability, but also consequences. Do you think... what? I, Let's, let me ask it this way. What's your message to um, school board members and parents about the possibility of a school having to close or cut services 
if they are not accountable to the new compensation standards? I know that's a big question. So speaking directly to some of those school districts to say, hey, what is the impact of this debate on, on your leadership in the future? Yeah, thanks, Lori. So I've got two uh, kids that are in the Madison School District. So certainly when it comes to teachers, education, those things are very important to me. <clears throat> and many of our colleagues and so that's arriving over to us today so now our discussion really kicks up on our side um, i think there is broad consensus and that we need to make sure our teachers are well taken care of I mean, we'll want to make sure that they're paid fairly i know from a parent's aspect uh, my kids they come home they talk about the lessons they learned and i know we've got teachers out there um, that give absolutely everything and take money out of their own pocket uh, to help these kids learn and have a successful uh, uh, you know future and so i appreciate the work they do and we're going to have a really good discussion uh, about the teacher pay we're going to continue to work on that to see if there's ways we can improve it uh, through that and we're going to take uh, a lots of input from a wide range of stakeholders as we go through that and so uh, no idea uh, yet what those things might be uh, but i will tell you we're not having the discussion uh, that you had asked the question about is uh, do we think that this is going to close down the school right away that is not uh, something that i think we are interested in uh, right now we're interested in trying to do this in the best way possible and making sure our teachers are paid fairly all right uh, south dakota focus with jackie hendry is on thursday and there's going to be a whole episode about teacher recruitment and those pipelines uh, to bring new educators into the classroom but for today we're going to wrap up with senator casey crabtree his majority leader of the state senate and representative will mortensen who is leading republicans in the state house of representatives here on crossover day Thank you, gentlemen, and uh, good luck for today going forward with those debates. Sounds good. Thanks, Lori. Thanks, Lori. This is In the Moment State House on SDPB. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, former President Donald Trump confirmed that South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem is on his shortlist for vice presidential candidates as he campaigns for another term in the White House. During a town hall event in South Carolina, he included Tim Scott, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, and Governor Noem as three of the five front runners. Well, we'll start there for today's political analysis. My guests are Lisa Hager and Dave Wiltsey, both associate professors of political science at South Dakota State University, and they're joining us on Zoom. Dr. Hager, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Great to be here. Dr. Wiltsey, welcome back as well. Thanks for having me. Let's start with you, Dave. Uh, the announcement is not really a surprise to most people who were sort of placing her on a short list. And uh, the former president did not give, as far as I know at this time, um, any indication of when he would be making a selection. So has anything really changed today after this announcement in your estimation? Uh, not, not especially. I was kind of surprised with uh, uh, Ron DeSantis being on that list. Um, he didn't have much nice things to say about him in the in the last few uh, weeks of the campaign, uh, but you know that's that's not uncommon for some of the people who did well in the primaries to uh, be on that vice presidential shortlist. Um, little surprised about uh, Ramaswamy being on that list. Uh, he's not exactly a you know a typical VP pick, somebody who has you know no uh, political experience whatsoever. But the other names are. You know, who have you been talking about most of this time? And it's no surprise that is it, Governor Nome is, is right there. This is not a typical candidate running for office either. So from what we know about him 
in the past, he he won't necessarily take the traditional path. Going this this short list might not be who he selects from, even. So help us understand what it means for right. Governor Christie Nome. Um, what does it do to her? You know, work with the state legislature right now. What does it do to how she has to plan? Um, her communications and her ambitions, what has changed for her, if anything, today, Dave? I don't think anything's really changed. We'll see her on basically the same trajectory that we've had for the past uh, few months, ever since her name's been circulating around. I mean, Donald Trump works on id, on impulse, and uh, no one is going to bank on anything uh, when it comes to uh, who's most probable in terms of his pick. Um, he is, you know, you know, he is not your typical uh, candidate, obviously. But you know, in 2016, he did fall back onto a fairly well-established uh, politician, uh, and I would imagine he would try to do that again. I mean, it does bring some credibility to the ticket. It does bring some support that an outsider uh, really can't um, bring him. But somebody like Governor Nome or any of those others on the list, really. Uh, would be good, solid choices. Uh, Lisa Hager, talk to us a little bit about what Christy Nome needs to do next. We're going to get into her sending um, National Guard troops to the southern border in just a minute. That might be one of the things that the president is looking for regarding loyalty and that particular topic and some kind of action. How does she sort of split, if this is something that she wants to do, and we're making an assumption there, that she would be willing and um, uh, ready to take on that kind of uh, challenge if she got the call. Um, so that's noted fairly, I think. But if she wanted to, is she trying to get his attention in any specific ways right now? How does she position herself knowing that that's the short list? My guess is that she has been trying to get Donald Trump's attention for quite a while so that she would be included on the shortlist that he discussed recently. And so I think in order to remain on that list and ultimately possibly get selected, she is going to want to play up her qualifications every chance she gets. So when she is making decisions and communicating, about anything that she's doing in her dealings with the legislature or other executive decisions that she's making, like sending troops to the border. She's going to want to talk about her qualifications, her experience. You know, these are the kinds of things that an executive needs to be able to do. Because as we see from political science literature, as women are trying to achieve executive positions, especially when we look more at the pipeline to governorships, that's where we see Republican women really needing to play up their qualifications. And that just tends to be the case when we're looking at them running for really any um, type of office. At the same time, Lisa, she has been criticized for her national ambitions and for taking her eye off the ball in South Dakota. She's been criticized for her use of the state airplane. She's been criticized for her travel itinerary and some of the decisions that she's made. She came into this legislative session and the State of the State address and the budget address with um, 
What could you? I think you could argue it's a, a lighter policy look and, and more of a, hey, this, these are my priorities, but she's kind of letting the state lawmakers do what they need to do. So where is that line between she's too checked out and doesn't have her eye here at home versus I'm letting the state legislature do the legislative work that needs to be done, and that's a good thing. It's better than being in conflict with them from last year. She's a lot to balance here is what I'm getting at. So any final thoughts on how she manages that during a legislative session? I think showing that she has a healthy respect for the legislature is going to serve her well moving forward. So no, you definitely don't want to appear checked out, really too focused on your national ambitions, but you also don't want to appear too interventionalist. And so I think that does serve her well if she's kind of showing I have this healthy respect for the legislature when she is trying to possibly be named as vice president, but also Donald Trump is, you know, pretty heavy handed in his approach to things. So maybe that won't serve her well, but I think in general, it is good for her moving forward, especially with any additional political ambition she may have. All right, let's bring this to the next topic of the day, which is South Dakota National Guard Guardsmen. Uh, the governor's office says about 60, but not all at once. They'll go on rotating deployments to the southern border. This all comes from her visit to the southern border, from her joint session in South Dakota, talking to lawmakers about what she calls a war zone at the southern border. She's really looking, Dave, for this idea of the rules of engagement need to be determined and this ties into Governor Abbott's battle with uh, President Biden on implementation of border security. There's a lot happening. I'm hoping we can kind of focus on that, uh, you know, state versus federal um, call to action. Uh, Dave, what's what's important to you in in this whole conversation about what this governor is doing in sending those troops the, the fifth time that they've gone, um, how it's paid for? Like, what do you think is the most important thing for us to talk about today regarding that? Well, this is all just, you know, virtue signaling and, uh, you know, just setting up a, a manufactured conflict uh, that will play well uh, with the uh, Republican base when it comes time for the general election. Uh, in the end, these sorts of things are going to have very little effect on uh, actual uh, conditions down at the border. And Lisa can certainly comment better than I can on you know, where the constitutional authorities lie and what the courts might say about this. But this is this is political theater. Um, and I wouldn't read too much beyond that. It's good for their base. It's good for uh, the general election. It is a topic that they think that they own uh, right now. And they're running with it. And they're running with it hard. Are there concerns that you see playing out about political theater with a state budget and the South Dakota Disaster and Emergency Fund, how it's being paid for, and with our own National Guard troops, uh, you know, being part of that political theater. When does that yeah. rise to a level of concern for South Dakota voters? I, I think it would, it, it would really be concerning if you start to see open criticism uh, from the National Guard itself, from the troops, from the leadership uh, within the National Guard about this kind of action. Um, but until it gets to that point, I don't think people are going to care too much. Yeah. Um, people have been pretty tolerant of these sorts of uh, ventures in the past. You look at what's happening with a lot of these southern states that are sending busloads of immigrants and applicants for asylum to 
various uh, cities across the north and the west, people aren't really up in arms about this uh, when it comes to the base that they're trying to uh, cater to here. So again, it really is, it, it, it's, it's theater and until lives are lost or until uh, you know, we have a real conflict uh, within the National Guard itself, I don't think people are going to pay too much mind to it. Lisa Hager, help us understand that uh, constitutional foundation and some of the challenges between what Governor Nome is saying, Governor Abbott is saying, versus the federal government. There seems to be some tension there that has made me uncomfortable as I watch some of the rhetoric. Help us uh, parse it out a bit, please. Yeah, so when we talked at the beginning of the month about some of the statements that Governor Nome had made, she did reference some areas of Article One of the U.S. Constitution, which Article One, as I always tell the student, deals primarily with Congress. So that's the best way to kind of think about the Constitution. And she specifically referenced one section that I think is worth talking about today, which really gets at this idea of how much power states have in situations like this and where we do see the constitution empowering the states has to do with when there is some sort of invasion or imminent danger and so here we get into this question of really what is an invasion what is imminent danger you know, early Supreme Court cases that have looked at this particular provision tells us that this has more to do with some sort of in armed invasion. And so if we're looking at that definition, that's not necessarily what we're seeing at the southern border where we have immigrants and asylum seekers there. And so I think from, you know, that type of perspective, we could see some sort of clash coming about really, you know, what is the interpretation of the Constitution and how does that compare to what we're seeing at the southern border? Is there a benefit, Lisa, in pushing that? Because when I think about the, the mission that's been laid out by the governor's office in a press release is, you know, wall construction. Uh, these National Guardsmen from South Dakota are primarily, their mission is going to be help um, helping construct um, some kind of barrier. That would indicate to me that that they haven't found a broader mission for them other than that, which is fairly con confined. Is there um, a benefit uh, to, to pushing that and testing the limits of it, or is that um, a fool's errand? What do, you, what do you think? I mean, I think at this point, the benefit of sending National Guard troops to the southern border gets back to what Dave was talking about, where this place well with the base it sets up this conflict between what the states are wanting or certain states are wanting compared to the federal government texas in particular feeling that they're not getting the support from the federal government in dealing with this particular issue or even dealing with the larger issue which relates to immigration law and asylum law here in the united states all right, we are going to leave it there for today. Our Dakota political junkies have been Lisa Hager and Dave Wiltsey, both uh, associate professors of political science at South Dakota State University in Brookings. Dr. Hager, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Dr. Wiltsey, thank you as well. Thanks. This is In the Moment, a state house on SDPB. I'm your host, Lori Walsh. Well, earlier in the hour, we heard from state Republican leaders 
for a crossover day update. Again, crossover day is the deadline for when a Senate bill must move to the House and a House bill must advance to the Senate. Any bills left in the dust are considered dead this session. So let us hear from state Democrats now about their priorities as we move in to the final weeks. Senator Reynold Nesipa and Representative Orrin Lesmeister are minority leaders in the Senate and House respectively, and they are seated in our Capitol studio in Pierce. Senator Nesaba, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Great, thank you, Lori, and great to hear your uh, great to hear your voice again. And uh, yeah, go ahead, Leader Lesmeister. Thanks for being here as well. Yes, ma'am. Pleasure to be here. Let's start with uh, Ronald Nesaba and tell us a little bit about how you're looking at this crossover day and some of the priorities as bills move over to the Senate. Well, as usual, uh, crossover day can be, a, can be a sad day. We oftentimes uh, dress in black to mourn the loss of all of our good ideas that didn't make it to the other side. <laughs> Today, uh, the senators are dressed in blue uh, because it's uh, raising awareness for uh, colon cancer awareness uh, for our friend Mike Diedrich, uh, who has been missing from the floor for uh, the last month or so, and uh, we miss him. And if Mike is listening today, we wish him, uh, we wish him well, and we miss him. Uh, we, you know, Democrats have had a, a variety of really great bills that haven't made it over. So, uh, as usual, Democrats are advocating for ordinary working people in South Dakota. We've brought forward bills to raise the minimum wage, to make it easier to make a work compensation claim, to uh, protect our uh, our workers at uh, at warehouses uh, in South Dakota. We've uh, advocated for bills that enhance education and uh, make it easier to get access to health care, and, and many of those have, uh, have not made it from uh, one chamber uh, to the other. I still have one bill, Senate Bill 123, uh, has made it over. It's a bill that would compel the election board to, uh, to meet every year, and this is just uh, you know a good elections bill, and we're also going to put an amendment on that uh, to deal with a really great bill that the Senate sent to the House, but the House uh, killed along the way, and we're going to give them a second chance at fixing this. And this was a bill uh, having to do with uh, making it a, a little easier for RVers to be able to uh, register to vote and to vote. Um, Leader Lesmeister, on your side of the House, what uh, what are you looking forward to for priorities in these final two weeks? Well, moving forward, you know, as a good senator said, uh, just trying to work and do what's right for the people of South Dakota. Still working on. You know, the, the big issues in a room, of course, are the pipeline bills, um, but still trying to make sure we get a budget that's balanced, make sure that we do fund uh, all of our priorities, which is the big three with the governor, uh, maybe hopefully look at, at the funding mechanism and, and try to pull some more funding into education possibly. Uh, there's always too many asks for the big part of the pie, but um, we've, we've got to keep funding education. We put some mandates in place in the House yesterday on a bill we passed out. Uh, that goes directly towards the teacher salaries. What we got to do now is make sure we give the districts enough money to actually uh, fund them salaries. So that's some of our priorities um, that moving forward would be them. Yeah. I would just, may, may I just add on to that? I yeah. know that, uh, that Representative Whitman does have a bill or two yeah. that have made it over uh, from crossover, and one of hers is an ID bill that would make it easier for somebody who's homeless to be able to get an ID, and that makes yeah. it easier for them to, to be able to get employment, to open up a bank account, to get housing. And again, it's just another common sense uh, yeah. bill that uh, we're proud of her and that yes. legislation, and uh, hopefully we can get it through the Senate as well. So some common, and Orrin, I want to bring it back to you for that, uh, some common themes around election, election security, who can vote, voting mm -hmm. rights. That seems to be someplace you found some middle ground with Republicans. Say more about that. So on some of these election bills uh, that are coming through again, 
uh, what we're trying to do is is make sure we don't stifle anybody's vote at all. Uh, we've got another bill that, that Senator was talking about to uh, take a hard look at making sure that we follow federal law mm -hmm. to allow people to be able to vote in the federal elections. Um, Tyler Tortson had a bill up today though, it was a Senate bill that came over to us uh, that Sean Bordeaux had. Uh, we presented that to the state, uh, he presented it to the State Affairs Committee this morning. Uh, a couple of minor amendments, uh, some word changes just to make it, uh, make sure that language is right. But that's another bill that would allow uh, Native Americans to use their voter ID cards to register to vote. Now, not all tribes have uh, memorandums with the state, and they have, that's one piece of that bill that they do have to have. But that's another way that we're trying to open things up to where uh, people are, are allowed to vote and, and uh, get more voters uh, out to vote. How well, um, and maybe Senator Nesba, I'll ask you this first, and uh, Leader Lesmeister can jump in if he has some additional thoughts, but Senate Bill 13 coming out of the Senate in the debate that we heard yesterday in the Senate about conventions and about how we elect an attorney general, a secretary of state, a lieutenant governor. Um, my question for you, Ronald, is how, how would that impact the Democratic Party? And then, Orrin Lesmeister, if you could talk a little bit about potential, uh, you know, partnerships and allyships there in the House as uh, this is not something that the Republicans all agree on. So, Senator Nessaba, you kick it off and then we'll pass it over. Right. And uh, Democrats made the, the difference. That bill passed only by a couple of votes and three of us voted for uh, that bill. One of us voted uh, against that bill. Essential to it was that there is uh, a section of that that would say if a party does not nominate somebody by through the petition process for the primary for secretary of state or attorney general that that party still could use its convention. So that would apply for Democrats, Libertarians, Constitutional Party or Republicans as well if for some reason uh, they weren't able to do that. So there, there I'm is sorry, a can you go back? I didn't quite catch that. Say that part again, please. For, mm -hmm. for yeah. 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 So thank you for uh, giving me a second uh, chance at that. So <laughs> there's a section of the bill that would allow a party that, that fails to nominate somebody in the primary, they would still be able to use their convention. And mm -hmm. so that was an amendment that uh, we had on a similar bill uh, a, yes, uh, a year ago, mm -hmm. and, uh, and Representative Healy had added that to, uh, to a bill on the other side, so we've been referring to that as the, the Healy yeah, amendment, man. and that does bring Democrats uh, in support of the bill. And again, it just barely made it off of the Senate floor, but I'm hopeful that we get it done. I just think that you need to have more voters uh, participating in the process of selecting our attorney general and selecting our secretary of state. Those are those are important and they deserve to go through a primary process. Can you give me a scenario where that would happen? Yeah, so Hypothet uh, hypothetically, yes. Yeah, so rather than it going to a convention with two or three hundred people in the room and that convention deciding uh, you know how, who that would be. Instead, they would go out and uh, circulate petitions, just like legislators do, just like governor, uh, gov gubernatorial candidates do, and actually gather those petitions, turn them in by whatever the March deadline is, and then they would be on the the June primary ballot. If a party failed to follow that process, they would still be able to do that at their convention and uh, and then be able to uh, notify the Secretary of State that that is the nominee coming out of the convention and they would be on the November ballot. I see. Okay. Um, Representative Lesmeister, that moves into the House. That is the place uh, for perhaps mm -hmm. amendments and adjustments and, and new partnerships. What are you looking forward to with that? Well, at this time, I, I don't know of any amendments coming at it at this time. Um, I'm sure there will be. You know, you, you brought up the fact that 
a lot of the Republicans are either in favor or not in favor of this. It's, it's, it's a house divided, as they would say, um, on their side. Um, the first version of this bill that came through State Affairs had a lot more language in it, and I spoke out very hard on it. Mm -hmm. um, did not like the bill at all in that form, and it died in committee. Um, I think that kind of sent a message that you better start including everybody, you better scale it back some. Um, and I, I, I do like the version that's coming out of the Senate now. I, I, that's a version that we can uh, support. Um, I'm not going to speak for the whole caucus because we, we have not debated this bill in caucus yet. Sure. But, you know, personally, I can support this version of this bill now. And, and Lori, I'd like to just offer kudos to, uh, to Leader Lesmeister on that. You know, the original version of that bill had it put it in our Constitution. Yeah. And, and that's unnecessary. Putting this in statute is the right place yep. uh, for it to be, and I appreciate his leadership on that in uh, killing that and uh, giving us a different approach to this. Yeah, so. yeah putting this in the Constitution, if I may, yeah. uh, was absolutely the wrong place. Because if, if we got something wrong in it, uh, in statute, it's one thing each year we can come back as legislators um, and deal with it, but putting it in the Constitution was just absolutely the wrong place to put it. All right, Leader Lesmeister, let's wrap up. We just have like a minute or two left with the pipelines. Go back to the pipelines and help me understand what you're thinking and your leadership is right now with what, what remains to be decided. Well, even, you know, we talked about the Republicans being split on some of these issues. Um, you know, we're, we're sitting here, we're, we're a split caucus on this. Um, you know, we got three different pipeline bills, 1185, 1186, and then 201 that's coming out of the Senate right today um, with some amendments on it. Um, but that's the big elephant in the room this year, really. Uh, that is the, the pipeline issue is, is huge. Um, that's why even, you know, we're divided on it. It is a huge issue. Um, we're going to probably get one stab at this to get it right, um, whether it's uh, within protections for landowners, um, making sure we don't stifle industry, um, but at the same time, uh, trying to get right. And, you know, last year there was a lot of bills came forward. Um, none of them passed. Uh, we, we took a couple of different shots on this year on bills that have not passed. Uh, so we're down to the three now. Uh, we send the 1185 and, and 6 both over to the Senate. They'll probably be sending 201 to us today that deals with uh, different fractions. They're, they're three really different bills. Mm -hmm. um, they're really garnered to try to put some protection in for landowners without stifling the industry. Um, we've all got our different <laughs> uh, reasons <laughs> yeah. uh, and arguments on how to get there. Um, but at the end of the day, we're, we are trying to work around all of this. Um, I don't think anybody's really against a pipeline. It's just the mechanism of getting a pipeline put in, and that's the intimate domain. That's, that's the ugly word in, in the room. Right. All right. I think that's a great place for us to wrap up today, but also to uh, work on a, a future show that uh, dives deep into that yes. topic in the next couple that weeks. It's, it's pretty nuanced. So Orrin Lesmeister is Minority Leader in the State House of Representatives, Reynold Nesaba, Senate uh, Minority Leader in the South Dakota State Senate. We appreciate your time and the updates. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Lori. Always great to visit with you. And that is our show for today. We hope that it served you in the moment, State House. 
airs on SDPB TV Thursdays at 4 Central and 3 Mountain Time. You can also watch the program on SDPB's Facebook and YouTube pages and share it there. Now on tomorrow's In the Moment, does South Dakota have a culture of collusion? Patrick Lally from Sioux Falls Live is joining us. We'll have analysis on Governor Kristi Noem's Freedom Works Here campaign and what he calls the validity of competitive bidding for a state contract. So some political analysis coming up on tomorrow's program as well. From all of us at SDPB, I'm Lori Walsh. Thank you for being here.